This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching for the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're wrapping up chapter 21. When Jesus was here on the earth, he faced many challenges. One of the most heartbreaking was the fact that the people of Israel, God's chosen people, gradually rejected his teachings. If this were just another man teaching people to live upright lives, that would be one thing. But this is the Son of God, the Creator, coming to rescue his creation from the judgment they deserve, and their response was to crucify him. To be honest, that's our response too, until the Holy Spirit softens our heart and convicts us of our need for Christ. But today we'll discover four traps that leave people headed for eternal judgment. You'll want to avoid these traps at all costs. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Follow along with me. It says this. Listen to another parable. These are the words of Christ. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance." They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from God and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet." I'm going to point out four dangers of spiritual decline here. The first one is I'm going to call the rebellion of unbelief, verses 33 through 39. So Jesus tells them this fictitious story. Remember, parables are not real stories. Keep that in mind. There is no literal landowner here or vine growers or a vine for that matter. This is a technique that Jesus used many times, as you are familiar, and he's speaking proverbially to make a point. And to understand the meaning of this parable, I'm going to point out to you the two elements that are clearly seen here, the characters and the conspiracy, okay? So let's look at the characters of this parable. The landowner obviously represents God the Father who expects fruit. Again, how do we know that? Because a couple of scenes ago, Jesus cursed the fig tree because they did not produce fruit. So we concluded then that God always expects fruit fruit of his followers. In other words, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who claims to follow Christ, there needs to be fruit in your life. But in the parable, Jesus probably had in mind 
Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. Let me read that passage to you and you'll see the connection. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So right there, it gives us an indication that Jesus is using a figure of speech that the people would have known exactly what he was talking about, not only because of their day-to-day lives, but because it was in the Bible. Jesus is using something very familiar to them and indicating here that the vine grower is the Lord and the vine is the people of God who he expects to bear fruit. Now, the psalmist also presents a similar picture. In case they missed this one, no, listen to this. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 10. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and took a deep root and filled the land. So we know right there that he is talking about the people of Israel. And the fact that Jesus mentions the hedge around the vine talks about the protection of God, the fact that he planted the people in the promised land and promised to protect them and promised to give them a future. In fact, in Jeremiah 2, verse 21, the Bible speaks clearly about that when it says, I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? They understood exactly what Jesus was talking about when he gave this illustration of a vine. Therefore, since we know then who the vine is talking about and who the landowner is, we can conclude the rest very easily. For example, the slaves. Who are they in the story here? Well, they symbolize the many generations of prophets commissioned to inform people that God expects fruit from them. And you will remember that John the Baptist was the last one of those prophets when he came preparing the the way for Christ and proclaiming, you brood of vipers, talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief elders, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 8. So we know very clearly that God planted the people of God in the land to produce fruit, and that fruit was so that the name of God would be spread out among the world through their obedience, through their godliness, through their keeping of the covenant. They failed to do that, and God kept sending prophets to them to remind them of their disobedience and to warn them and encourage them to walk with God again in godliness. And the last one of those guys was John the Baptist. Now, who are the vine growers? They represent the Sanhedrin, the religious body at the time who conspired to kill Christ. And we know that because, again, they were the self-proclaimed guardians of doctrine. And for them, for that reason, they thought that their fruit was acceptable to God. But they were about to kill the heir. Now, Jesus had already prophesied about them. In Mark 8, 31, for example, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And again... The moment he told this parable, his crucifixion now is days away. So obviously then, who is the son, church, the heir of the landowner here? Jesus Christ himself, who was crucified after this interaction here. So these are the characters. But let's understand the conspiracy here. It's a simple plot, not hard to understand. It doesn't require a lot of reflection because the meaning is so clear. The simple plot here symbolizes the rejection of Israel towards Christ 
and their consequent downward spiral towards condemnation. This is their Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting for, the one who was promised in the Old Testament that they claim to know. And here he is fulfilling every prophecy from, from the book, healing people, coming, riding on a donkey to Jerusalem, performing miracles and all of that. And they fail to see that not because of a lack of evidence, but because of an obstinate heart and a disobedient heart. You know, God chose the nation, separated them from Egypt, planted them in the promised land, and protected them from their enemies supernaturally. You remember the book of Esther? And that's the imagery of a wall around the vineyard here. But the people who expected to preserve this distinguished position rebelled against the benevolent landowner instead of stewarding those blessings. And so the first danger that we conclude here is that refusal to acknowledge Jesus is not an option, a valid option against many others that, that people take and say, well, I, I politely decline. No, it's a sin. It's an affront to God. Everyone who rejects Christ will have to face Him on Judgment Day. It's better to face Him as Lord and Savior in the day of the rapture rather than to face Him as judge in the day of the great white throne judgment. So, Everyone who rejects Christ is affronting God. People who fail to come to Him are not, again, choosing an option. They are signing their own death certificate. And that is exactly what these guys were doing here. The Sanhedrin rejected Jesus because He threatened their authority. In church, that is very common, the reason why people reject Jesus. It's because Jesus threatens their perceived authority. See, every time someone will reject Christ... What they're really saying is, I will not have this man rule over my life. I am the king of my own life. I am the final authority in my own life. Some of us came through Christ after realizing we are really not the authority in our own lives. Obviously, that was a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But uh, acknowledging Christ means abandoning whatever belief system you have prior. And that's the reason why they did not want to abandon their belief system. Because it, with their belief system came the ability to influence people. So people reject him today for the same reason. They elevate their perceived authority above Christ's real authority. And just like the Sanhedrin there, people would kill Jesus if they had the chance. And because legally people are not authorized to kill you and me as followers of Christ, they resort to the second best strategy. What is that second best strategy? Intimidate you and me into silence. But that's the rebellion of unbelief. Let me show you the second danger of spiritual decline here. I'm going to call this one from verses 40 to 42, the deception of unbelief. Again, people who fail to come to Jesus Christ, they are not simply choosing another option. They are wallowing in their own deception, which will lead them to condemnation. Jesus ends this parable with a question. Did you notice? That is a very common teaching technique meant to stimulate reflection. And the response from the listeners here reveals a sense of justice that operates only until they realize their own guilt. It is a shocking story that the landowner would be so gracious and that, that these guys would be so neglectful and, and rebellious that obviously when you read this parable for the first time, it elicits in you the same response. These are wretched people. These are ungrateful, irresponsible criminals that deserve condemnation. Now, we come up with the same conclusion, and we have more in common with these guys than we want to admit. <laughs> we quickly, just like them, point out the sins of others publicly while we privately attempt to overlook our own, and we hope that others will too. I am convinced that our self-righteous mind reasons like this. 
The rapist is a wretch, not me. The child molester is a wretched person, not me. I will keep my sexual sin between me and my computer. Nobody else needs to know. But publicly, I'll cry out against everybody else's sins. Or how about this one? I will assassinate the character of this person, but I'm going to disguise as that as a prayer request. Well, you need to pray for so-and-so because haven't you heard? So Jesus exposes this hypocrisy with this parable of the wicked tenants. And in case you think this is a unique feature of Jesus' methodology, let me take you to the Old Testament to show you that God really likes to use this methodology here. He commissioned a man by the name of Nathan, a prophet, to confront David. But when the prophet told David a parable of a rich man who stole a lamb from a poor man to prepare a meal to a stranger. The king understood exactly what he was talking about. But listen to the reaction of David when he heard this story from Nathan. 2 Samuel 12, verses 5 through 6. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. But then the prophet dropped the bomb. You are the man. So Nathan continues to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with a sword of the sons of Ammon. So Nathan then confronts David and exposes his hypocrisy. Just like Christ exposed the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees 2,000 years ago, just like Scripture exposes our hypocrisy daily. In church, yes, we must hate our own iniquity before we can non-hypocritically point out the sins of others. Let me repeat this. You and I must hate our own sin before we can non-hypocritically point out the sins of others. Jesus states it like this. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Matthew 7, verse 5. So church, that means we need to daily be asking God to search our hearts and see if there's any evil way in us. Daily saying, Lord, please, is there a sin in my heart that I can't even identify? Please, cleanse me. But look at verse 42 here in this parable. I want you to see the divine sarcasm of Jesus one more time. In response to his opponent's self-deception, he takes them to scriptures. Because, again, these are the guys who claim to know the Bible. And one more time he says, well, have you never read or did you never read, he says here, the Scriptures? And again, this was a, a question that was a, a knife in their hearts. He takes them to Scripture and paraphrases Psalm 118, verses 22 through 23. That's what he's doing here. And now he switches metaphors from an agrarian setting to now a construction site. The murdered son is now a rejected stone. But Christ affirms that God has already planned all of this. this. This doesn't catch him by surprise. The rejection of Israel towards Jesus Christ is not, Oops, I didn't plan for this. Oh my, what am I going to do now? I need to come up with plan B. No. Christ is saying, whatever it is that you think you're doing, God has already determined this from before the foundation of the world. God planned this rejection in order to place Jesus in a position of chief cornerstone. Now, in order to understand this analogy, let me give you some information. In construction projects during those days, architects look for or chiseled 
perfect stones because straight lines would provide stability, symmetry, and even aesthetic beauty to buildings. Now, Jesus' opponents didn't have any authority in this spiritual project, even though they claimed to have authority. And this is evident by the way they rejected Christ, who was approved by God. So the Father, the chief architect, then has given all the authority to the one he appointed as cornerstone of true faith. Check this out. Peter, who was probably within earshot of that interaction here, he probably witnessed all of this, later preached to Israel in Acts 4, verses 11 through 12. Listen to this. Christ is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But sadly, people insist, even to this day, in building their metaphorical building with not the perfect chief cornerstone, but with wood, hay, and stubble, rather than the right foundation. And you know what happens when people build their metaphorical home, their metaphorical building with these materials? The storms of life will come. And those buildings do not survive when the storms of life come. And even more tragically, when the fire of judgment comes later, they will be found guilty. And fire of judgment will destroy these dwellings. But on the other hand, Scripture promises, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Romans 10 verse 11. And that is again our privileged position, church. We looked at the rebellion and the deception of unbelief. Let me show you the third danger of spiritual decline here that uh, these guys exemplify for us. I'm going to call this the one the condemnation of unbelief. Verses 43 through 44. Because they themselves condemn them when they respond to Jesus Christ. Jesus concludes his indictment on the chief priests here and elders of Israel by speaking plainly. See, no more metaphors. Now, in verses 43 through 44, he is talking to them metaphorically. He quotes scripture to them. And because their heart is so hard, Jesus said, well, let me speak plainly to you now. You are no longer worthy to hear literary beauty from Jesus. So he speaks plainly to them, at least for now. He says to them very clearly, the kingdom of heaven will be removed from you. Uh, it doesn't get any more tragic than this. He promises to remove the kingdom from them and give it to another nation. Now, this, this was very offensive to them. They were boiling with anger now. Because, what? You're talking to Jews and you're saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to be removed from us and given to a pagan nation? To Gentiles? Now, he crossed the line there according to them in, in their book. But he says that other nation will bear the fruit that he expects. Now, Pause for a moment. As we are reading this, there are three questions, very important questions that we need to address here. See if you agree with me. First question is, what is that nation? Or who is that people who will receive the kingdom? Question number two, is this removal permanent? When Jesus says, the kingdom will be removed from you, is this a permanent move? And number three, has this new nation replaced Israel as the recipients of divine covenantal promises? In order to answer the first, let me take you to 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 5. This is Peter speaking to believers and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now listen to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 10 and answer that question yourselves. Again, he's addressing believers. And he says, 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So church, who is that people that is receiving the kingdom that Christ on that day said the kingdom will be removed from Israel? Who is that people? Us, the church, the holy nation, the people for God's own possession. We were not a people before, but now we are a people of God. We have received mercy now, but before we did not receive mercy. So this is a nation without borders, united not by language and culture, but by the new birth. And the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. And church, if you need proof of that, go to Philippians 3 verse 20 and see where your citizenship is. Now let's address the second and third questions. Romans chapter 9 verses 30 to 32. Paul says, and he reasons, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel... Pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And here is that illustration again. But before you conclude that the church has replaced Israel in future blessings, listen to the apostle again. Romans 11 verses 28 through 29. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, enemies of God for your sake. Because of the gospel. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So church, God has not removed Israel permanently from kingdom blessings. It is a temporary removal so that Gentiles, meaning you and me, can come and understand salvation by grace through faith. And every one of his promises to Israel will be fulfilled. We, the church, then are ambassadors of the mercy of Christ to them. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because Romans 11 verses 25 through 26, Paul says, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Church, there's coming a day when Israel will finally nationally look at the Messiah and say, we missed him. We missed Jesus. He is the Messiah. We missed him. Now let's turn to him and let's proclaim him around the world. There will be 12,000 of those specifically from each of the 12 tribes of Israel during the tribulation of the end times. And there will be the evangelists of the time because their partial hardening will have been Done. The hardening of their hearts. They will recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll finish with number four here, the fourth danger of spiritual decline. I'm going to call this the affection of unbelief. And the reason I'm using that word is because of the affection of these guys. They claim to love God, but in fact, they love their own reputation. After hearing such a clear rebuke from Christ, his persecutors hardened their hearts even more, demonstrating really where their affection lies. Their wounded egos would not allow them to repent. And the alternative was to do exactly what was expected according to the parable of the wicked tenants. Well, let's kill the son. Let's kill the heir. He's confronted us. He has called us wretched sinners. And he said that the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from us. Well, let's kill the guy. 
They fear the people. And the, this is the second time that Matthew is telling us that this was their hard attitude. And you see here, church, how religious folks became murderers because they started to plot the crucifixion here. But what we learn is that self-affection is the cornerstone of unbelief. People love themselves way too much to submit to Jesus Christ. Now, we would never kill Jesus, of course, like these guys were planning to do. But sometimes we wish he stayed outside of the vineyard, don't we? We wish he stayed outside of the vineyard while we're planning our own lives. Until there's a crisis, at which point we beg him to come back to our rescue and leave as soon as we reach a perceived stability. I speak from personal experience. And I think that if you are honest, you will admit that you have done the same thing before. But thank God for his sanctifying grace. He forgives our self-centeredness and tenderly, patiently, and pastorally prunes us to maximize fruit bearing. So I echo Christ's invitation to people to come to him for salvation as I do every Sunday. I want to do the same today. And if there's anyone here that's an unbeliever, or, or maybe you think you're a believer because you've been coming to church your entire life, abandon your unbelief and recognize him as your Lord and Savior. And don't fall into the four traps that we studied today. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.